Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Helen Scales will be bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, a new study looks at the relationship between recurring breast cancer and eating soy products. And what they found was really striking. The people who had the highest amounts of soy in their diet had a 30% lower risk of death and about a 32% lower risk of the disease coming back compared with the people who ate the least amount of soy in their diet. A case of mistaken identity in the oceans. What we thought was white marlin, quite a lot of them, in fact up to 30% of recent records, could be a lookalike species, and it's called the round-scale spearfish. And how a book may be as distinctive as a fingerprint. So it turns out that as a book gets longer, even the very best writers eventually start to run out of new words to use. But the rate at which new words drop off depends on the skill of the author. And it's always the same for each author, giving them a unique word frequency fingerprint. That's all on the way. A quandary which has had people worried for some time if they've had breast cancer is whether or not they should eat soy. Because some people have raised the question that soy contains a lot of chemicals called phytoestrogens. These are plant estrogens. They're a family of chemical co- chemicals called isoflavones. And so some people have suggested that these chemicals could interact with things like tamoxifen, an agent used chemotherapeutically to treat breast cancer and stop it coming back. And therefore, should people who have had breast cancer be advised not to eat things with these phytoestrogens in them. Well, a big study has been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, this week. It's by Vanderbilt researcher Zhao Xu and colleagues. And what they did was to use data collected on 5,000 women in China who had been part of something called the Shanghai Breast Cancer Survival Study. And as part of that study, very large and extensive amounts of information about risk factors and lifestyle, drug exposure and so on and so forth for breast cancer had been collected. And what they then did was to compare how much people had in the way of soy in their diet and and in terms of whether they had breast cancer coming back afterwards or not and whether they actually died of breast cancer. And they followed up these people for a median time of about 3.9 years. And what they found was really striking. The people who had the highest amounts of soy in their diet had a 30% lower risk of death and about a 32% lower risk of the disease coming back compared with the people who ate the least amount of soy in their diet. Now, they don't know exactly why there is this association, but these phytoestrogens do seem to do things to oestrogen in the blood. And we know that some breast cancers are stimulated to grow more by the presence of things like oestrogen in the bloodstream. And these phytoestrogens, the soy-based oestrogens, reduce the level of oestrogen synthesis in the blood. They also stop the oestrogen interacting with chemical docking stations, the receptors on cells which bind oestrogen. They also raise the level of chemicals in the blood that bind oestrogen and stop it getting onto tissue. So there are all these possibilities that could explain why this observation has been made. But the one surefire conclusion is there's no evidence that soy is bad if you've had breast cancer and it may actually help to reduce the risk of it coming back. Can we rule out that it's something else about the lifestyle of the the soy eaters that's also helping them to survive better and combat the disease? Spot on. And this is an association... This is an association, not causation. So that's absolutely right. What they've done is to show there is this association between eating a lot of soy and the disease not coming back. The peak dose that people seem to need was about 11 grams a day, but it may also, as you quite rightly point out, be something about the lifestyle or the diet in those people, and they're going hunting to try and find out what it is.
Well, as we all know, breast cancer is a big problem, so the more we understand about ways of combating it, the better. Also this week, we have news of an endangered fish. And the problem is, what we thought was one species is in fact two, so they could both be doing much worse than we thought. And this case of a fishy mistaken identity involves the white marlin. Now, these are magnificent ocean-going fish. They can weigh in at over 80 kilos, which is bigger than me, and the grota over three metres long, which is also bigger than me. Um, But the problem is that uh, they are the prized target of a multi-million dollar sport fishery. And they're also caught in huge numbers accidentally by longline fisheries, which are actually after other fish like tuna and swordfish. Now, um, a team of researchers, uh, co-led by Lawrence Beer, Kirsha from the NOAA Fisheries Service and Mahmoud Shivji from the Guy Harvey Research Institute, both of them in America. They've published the uh, study in the journal Endangered Species Research, which shows that what we thought was white marlin, quite a lot of them, in fact up to 30% of recent records, could be a lookalike species, and it's called the round-scale spearfish. Now this does look extremely like the white marlin. I don't think I would know the difference by looking at them. But um, actually just a couple of years ago we discovered this new species through genetics. And what uh, Mahmoud and Lawrence have done is they've gone and analysed this to find out just how wrong we've been recently about how many white marlin are being caught. And uh, the, the worrying picture that they're painting is that, yes, quite a lot of the fish that are being caught are in fact a different species, these spearfish. But we don't really know how much that has changed as we go back in, into the past. And this really has a great influence on, on the assessments of how both those species have been doing and that will feed into how we've been protecting them and the conservation measures that we're going to need to look at them both. So really what this is, is it's sending the scientists back to the drawing board. We're going to have to really reassess both these species and find out information once again sort of from scratch um, about how they're both doing. And uh, I, th- I think what this study is also really highlighting to us is that sometimes we think of taxonomy, that science of species identification, as, as a, maybe a bit of a dusty, old-fashioned pursuit that's confined to the corridors of, of museums. But far from it, what we're really seeing is just how important it is for us to understand what species there are in the world, especially many of the ocean-dwelling species that we're busy hunting towards extinction. So not always true, there are plenty more fish in the sea. Sadly not. Indeed. Thanks, Alan. Um, Now, another interesting thing that's come out this week is a new way to better repair arteries. Now, if you'd had coronary artery disease, in other words, blockage in a heart blood vessel causing heart disease probably about 20 years ago, the best way to treat you would have been a heart bypass. You would have had to have had your chest opened up, the coronary blood vessels exposed, and then a piece of uh, usually vein, but blood vessel taken from somewhere else in the body and used to bridge the blockage in the artery in order to restore blood flow. But in recent years, this has been replaced by the technique of angioplasty. What you do is thread a fine tube, usually up through an artery in the leg, into the heart blood vessels, squirt some dye down to see where the blockages are, and then you inflate a balloon where the blockages are, open up the occluded or blocked bit of artery and restore the blood flow. The problem is that after you do that, the artery blocks up again, probably because the injury that's done when you squeeze it open with this balloon inflation then causes cells in the artery to regrow. So in more recent years, what doctors have done is to start inserting little metal cages called stents. So when you open up the artery, you then prop it open with these metal stents. 
The problem is that some people then get those stents furring up again, and this is probably because cells that lie in the blood vessels overgrow around the stent, and again, you get another blockage. So what they then did was to start making something called a drug-eluting stent. So this is the kind of Rolls-Royce of stents. These stents actually produce drugs which stop cells from growing, and they're very, very effective. They stop people getting any more recurrences of heart disease after their arteries have been treated. But in a small minority of cases, some people do get more problems again, including blood vessels blocking up, blood clots and heart attacks, the very thing that this is designed to prevent. So why? Well, no one really understood why this should happen in just a small minority of people, but a group of researchers over in Harvard, this is Vijaya Kola Chalama, who's a researcher at Harvard, has published a paper in the journal PLOS One this week where they have the answer. What they've done is to build a very clever computer model which can predict how blood flows down an artery, especially if the artery's got a branch in it, and what happens when you put one of these metal cages, one of these stents, in the artery. And what they're finding is they can then model how the concentrations of the drugs coming out of the stent change downstream and also within the stent itself. For instance, at one end of these stents, when they're only about a centimetre long, the drug will be 11% higher concentration than at the other end. So this may help to explain exactly why this occurs in the first place and how we can stop it. And so what the researchers are saying is that, for one, this can immediately teach us how we can make better stents in future to avoid this problem, and two, in the future it might be possible to take pictures or to get dimensions of a patient's arteries and then use that, plug it into the model they've designed, and work out better ways to treat their arteries to avoid the problem so they don't have heart attacks in the future. Finally this week, we've got a new piece of computer software that can read a book's literary fingerprint, and that's unique to the author who wrote it. So it turns out that as a book gets longer, even the very best writers eventually start to run out of new words to use. But the rate at which new words drop off depends on the skill of the author, and it's always the same for each author, giving them a unique word frequency fingerprint. Now, this is all based on analysis of books and stories by three great writers, Herman Melville, Thomas Hardy and D.H. Lawrence and a team of researchers from Sweden led by Sebastian Bernardson and they've come up with the idea that inside every writer's head is a meta book and what writers reach into this own personal meta book and pull out the words that they want to put down on the paper or type out on the computer screen and that was uh, published in the New Journal of Physics and it's really providing new insights into the way that language is used especially by the world's greatest writers. Now I don't claim to be one of those great writers but I do wonder if you plugged my book into this software how it would come out Um, and the team uh, is actually planning to do similar research on other literary works so perhaps I shall volunteer mine and uh, eventually they're going to see if it's possible to actually um, identify an unidentified author um, from the fingerprint left in their words. So are you saying that in the same way as they say musicians have only got so many songs that they can ever make that that a writer can only write so many books? I don't think that's it. I think what it is is that you've got a pool, this sort of meta book, the pool of words and that's where you will draw all. It's almost like they all the potentiality of all the books you'll ever write um, and you're just going to put them together in, a, in the right order but from those words and, and that will re- affect um, the overall fingerprint, the structure of the works that you're, you're going to produce. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler, and featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales. You can read about all of these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com, where you can also find all of our other podcasts. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.